Deborah and Derek Simpson live in a modest terraced house in East Kilbride in Lanarkshire. To all appearances, they seem like a normal couple and a normal family until you meet their children. Chloe, 21, Kimberly, 19, Natalie, 16, Benjamin, 15, Cameron, 13, Christopher, 12, Amy, 10, Nathan, 9, Louis, 7, Jade, 6, Celeste, 4, Elias, 3, and 19-month-old baby Orlando. Being part of such a large and growing family requires all sorts of adjustments and structure. So, whistle stop. This is what their day is like. To some of you parents who are struggling. Every morning at 6am, Derek wakes the children, makes their breakfast and packs lunches, then supervises them while they do their homework at two tables in the kitchen and the living room. Deborah gets the three little ones up, dresses and washes them, then fixes all the girls' hair with plaits and ribbons before the older ones head off to school. Derek walks the younger ones to the nearby primary, then walks to the Department for International Development, where he's been a civil servant since 1981 and now works flexi-time. He spends a couple of hours at the office before coming home to walk the two little ones to nursery. By then, Deborah has spent the morning doing housework and they have a couple of hours with just a baby at home when Derek can work from home on his laptop and she can go out to the shopping before he leaves to collect the children from nursery and primary school. They cook together between 4 and 5 p.m. and three times a week one of them heads off to Sainsbury's, usually Derek because Deborah can't carry all the groceries they need. At 8 p.m. they bath and put the youngest children to bed. The next lot go at 9 p.m. and after the eldest are in bed at 10 p.m. Derek finishes off his day's work on his laptop while Deborah irons nine freshly laundered school uniforms and lays them out ready for the following morning. They spend between six and seven hundred pounds at the supermarket every week. Pocket money alone works out at 240 pounds a month. When the family go on holiday together, they have to hire a bus. <laughs> Christmas costs them 3,000 pounds, but they wouldn't have it any other way. And you may have seen them featured this week in a documentary entitled 13 Kids and Wanting More. Now, those of us who've had the privilege and responsibility of parenthood know the changes that even one or two additions to your family can make. You soon forget after your first child what BC was like before children. And most of us, at a certain point, settle for a certain size of family. But, if you belong to the church family the people of God, then you can never settle for a settled family. For the membership of God's church should constantly be growing. And we've seen this in our series in the book of Acts, <clears throat> which we've entitled The Spreading Flame, because it describes how the message of Jesus spreads from its beginning in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth as he intended. We could actually have called it, on reflection, the growing family. It began with the twelve apostles that Jesus chose. By the time the risen Lord Jesus had ascended into heaven, the number of followers of Jesus had grown to 120. Then on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon these waiting disciples, 
Following the Apostle Peter's sermon, the church grew 2,600% in one day, as 3,000 people were added to their number. And following this, Luke tells us that the Lord added daily to their church those who were being saved. And before long, the number, and someone was counting, was 5,000 men, Acts 4, verse 4, plus women and children. Now, that's a growing family. And with such rapid growth, it's not surprising that we learn that this growing church began to experience growing pains. That's our theme this morning. And Luke tells us about a particular issue that triggered this off. So pick up a Bible or your own Bible if you've got one and turn with me to Acts 6 verses 1 to 7. Page 1098, if you need a pew Bible. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicana, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word that we're going to focus on this morning. So, let's begin by looking, first of all, at the problem, which, despite appearances, I want to suggest to you very strongly, is a serious situation. Look how it begins in verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, notice again the context. In those days, what days? Days of incredible growth as a result of powerful, spirit-inspired preaching, accompanied by miraculous signs and wonders, and days of growing opposition, for the apostles have recently been flogged. In the midst of all these exciting, challenging times, a problem arises. What is it? More persecution? No. Some big theological issue? No. A seemingly trivial issue. A problem about food. Now, Luke has already told us that in this early church, everyone shared what they had. So, Acts 4 verse 34, there were no needy persons among them. Now, in the society of that day, among the most needy people were widows, who in losing their husbands also lost their means of support. 
uh, such support for Jews normally came through the temple. And it may well be that Christians were beginning to be ostracized and find it difficult to get the normal means of support. Whatever the case, in the early church in Jerusalem, widows who had no other means of support or family received daily distribution of food. In fact, the original text just says daily distribution. The translators have added the word food to make it clear, but it may have included other things like clothing. That kind of thing you give out on the caravan sometimes. With increasing numbers, it seemed that some people were being overlooked in the distribution of food. However, the apostles and we would be making a grave mistake if we dismissed this as something trivial in comparison with everything else that was happening. In respect of such seemingly trivial matters, churches have been split and growth in local churches has been arrested. Which is why, with characteristic honesty, Luke puts this story in the midst of all these exciting things that are happening. It is no trivial matter because, as so often is the case, the issue itself is merely the symptom of a deeper problem. It's like when you go to the doctors, it's what they call the presenting issue. You go to the doctor and say, I've got a really bad headache and I keep suffering from headaches. Now, superficially, the doctor can say, have you ever heard of paracetamol or aspirin? But a serious doctor will examine and say, yeah, well, maybe these are being caused by something else. Your headaches may be caused by pressures of life. It may be pressures on your brain. So on a superficial level, it looked like the issue here in the early church was an issue about food. But below the surface, it was a much more serious issue. It was a problem about fellowship between fellow believers in the church. I don't have time to develop it, but if you want an interesting study, look at the interesting links in the Bible from beginning to end about the relationship between food and fellowship. Have you ever thought about that? Our first parents caused enormous havoc for the rest of mankind and the rest of history over an issue about eating what they shouldn't have eaten. When Jesus came to earth, he caused huge controversy largely because of the people he ate with. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. There's an interesting book by Conrad Gempf called Mealtime Habits of the Messiah. Or come further forward in Christian history. Here's this church in Corinth, and the Apostle Paul writes to him, and he says, some of you have fallen sick and even died. Why? Because of the way you eat your meals when you meet around the Lord's table. Now, the exact nature of the problem here in the early church is a source of much controversy. Um, it goes back a long way in time. Let me try and explain it as best I can. Over 300 years before this, Alexander the Great had embarked on his conquest of the known world. With him, he'd brought not only soldiers, but ideas. The language, culture, and thought patterns of the Greeks, which influenced every aspect of life. So subject peoples were pressured to conform to the Greek ideal, Hellenistic ideas and culture. In fact, in some places, they were so effective that the local languages died out to be replaced by Greek, which was the common language of the ancient world at this time. But not everybody conformed. Among the most resistant to the Greek ideas and culture and language were the Jews. Some of them, especially those still living in Israel and in Jerusalem, 
held tenaciously to their own culture and religion and the ancient Hebrew language of their scriptures and its sort of lingua franca common version, Aramaic. However, they were a minority even among their own people. For most Jews, especially far from home, slowly but surely began to conform to Greek culture and language. Now, the more Orthodox regarded such people as second-class citizens, people who had sold out their Jewish heritage. There was considerable tension between these two groups of people. And especially in Israel, where the most Orthodox lived, but where some of the Jews from Greek backgrounds had returned home to live out their last days in their homeland, which may well be why there were a lot of widows whose husbands had died who had no families around to support them. Now, among the followers of Jesus, among those who had responded to the Christian message, were converts from both backgrounds. And the tensions that existed between their respective communities were now carried over into the new community in which they joined the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, at first, when you read it, it seems that everything was okay. These differences were effaced. Uh, look at Acts 4.32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. They shared everything they had. But added growth, explosive growth, produced growing pains. And the symptoms, the way that you saw this, was in the distribution of resources drawn from the common purse. And in this context, these old tensions, community tensions, resurfaced with complaints that the widows of Grecian Jews were being shortchanged in favour of the widows who came from the Hebraic, traditional Jewish background. Now, we don't even know whether this complaint was justified or not. What we know is that those who were complaining really took it seriously. It was a big issue for them. And so we read there was complaining in the community. Uh, the Greek word for complain is one of those onomatopoeic words. You know the words that sound like it is? It's the word gongusmos. You know, it's a word like, sounds like you're complaining when you say gongusmos, you know? It actually has echoes in the history of Israel. Again, interestingly, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, you remember when the people of Israel were wandering from Egypt to Canaan? And they were constantly going, Ugh. and you know what they were going Ugh, about? Food. Now, such is the reality of human nature. Not only in general, but even among God's people under the Old and New Covenants. If you have never experienced in church life any then you've probably not been a member of the church for a very long time. Underlying tensions that sometimes go back a long way resurface, especially at times of growth and times of change between those from a Christian background and those from outside between those whose families grew up in the church and those who were incomers even 50 years later. Between the young people in the church and the old people in the church. Between the rich people and the poor people. And the complaint always is, we're missing out, we're being missed out. You see, whatever differences exist in human society can so easily be carried over into the new Christian society. Yes, we all know it should not be so, but the reality is that it is so. 
in the heat of some great spiritual battle. Even after some great spiritual victory, you'll find someone complaining about something. And usually, it looks like it's a pretty trivial issue in comparison with everything else. Yet we dismiss it or ignore it at our peril, for as much as the persecution by the Jewish authorities, as much as the corruption revealed by Ananias and Sapphira, this was a problem about food, about fellowship, which threatened the growth of the early church, if it's not dealt with. If the fellowship between believers breaks down on this issue, then it will nullify their powerful testimony in Jerusalem. Uh, the American uh, pastor and teacher in his series of sermons on Acts, the Church of Fire, Kent Hughes, writes, When Satan does not succeed in stopping the church with a frontal attack, he usually attacks from within. This usually happens subtly. An invitation not sent. A job unnoticed. A critical comment overheard. Jealousy over something that does not really matter. When the murmuring begins, the devil smiles. Let me say that again. When the murmuring begins, the devil smiles. So, here's our first fundamental point to grasp. That this issue about food distribution is no trivial matter, but a serious situation. And the way it is handled then and now in our churches can make or break this infant church and can make and break our churches. So what did the apostles do? Well, Luke tells us, secondly, that the apostles came up with a practical proposition. You see, you need to see the background here. These complaints are a particular challenge to the apostles. Why? Because they and most of the original 120, if not all of them, founder members of the church belong to the Hebraic community. The, the complaints really are directed at them. Before we look at how they dealt with the issue, it is well worth reflecting on how we would have responded and how churches have responded to this kind of thing in the past. I read one book this week that listed 20 different ways in which churches respond to this kind of thing, ranging from reacting defensively, we've just been flogged and you're worried about food? Or regret reacting aggressively and attacking the complainers? Why don't you put up and shut up and if you don't like it, join a better church? But the apostles do none of these things. Instead, they face up to the problem and address it head on. Look again carefully at the count of what they did in verses 2 to 4. So, in answer to the complaints... The twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, there are several important principles here about Christian conflict resolution, if you want to use a technical expression, that we can learn and how this was handled. First of all, note the relationship between the leaders and the people. The apostles call everyone together. They don't speak just privately with those who have the complaint, but involve everyone because it concerns everyone. But when everyone is gathered, they don't throw the floor open for discussion. Here's a problem that's been brought to our attention. Does anyone have a good idea or suggestion on how we can sort it out? No, it's clearly inferred 
that they've already discussed the issue, firstly in order that they've decided to call the whole church together, but secondly, they bring a practical proposal for resolving the issue. It's a proposal, notice, that doesn't place blame on anybody, but acknowledges that there is a problem which will require, in a growth situation, it will require some changes. The apostles can no longer take responsibility for every aspect of the life of the Christian community. That may have been possible in the early days. It's no longer possible. If you know your Bible, that was a lesson that Moses, the great leader of Israel, had to learn. He couldn't sit there judging everyone's complaints, and so he delegated responsibility down the line. You'll find that in Deuteronomy 19. And maybe the apostles are remembering this principle from Scripture. So they acknowledge, we can't do everything. We can't even control everything. And can I speak to those of us, including myself, who are leaders? It's hard to learn that, and it's even harder to put it into practice in a growth situation. I remember in my last church, when I went there, we had around 40 people in membership, and I think 70 in worship. Within four years, we had 150 members and over 300 attenders. And what I did when I first went there, I couldn't do... I just kind of lost it, it unraveled after about two or three years. Suddenly I lost touch. I was going to say I lost control, but that's right. You have to think differently in a growth situation. Growing pains are inevitable in growing situations. They must be addressed. Now, there's an important principle underlying this, and that is the recognition of different ministries. The apostles cannot do everything, so they choose to do something. They must choose their priorities. Perhaps up to this point, they've been involved in the food distribution. I think more likely, reading between the lines, what has happened here is these people have come and said, there's a big problem here, only the apostles can sort it out. They need to supervise this. You can imagine their arguments. If our Lord and Master Jesus washed your feet, surely it isn't beneath you to serve food to poor widow women. But the apostles have been uniquely equipped and called by Jesus, the twelve, for the ministry of the word and prayer. Their priority must be to continue to preach the good news and to pray. If they end up serving food to needy people, the progress of the gospel will be halted, the the spreading flame will be extinguished. And if these are their priorities then they must hand over responsibility for other things, such as waiting on tables, which may refer not only to food, but also money, money tables, to others within the fellowship. Now, notice carefully what they're saying. They are not saying distributing food is beneath us. No, in these words, interestingly, the word translated distribution of food is the same as that of preaching the word. Both are referred to as in Greek, diakonia, it means ministry, service. First to God, and then to other people. And in this case, as we'll see, to seven men, who will have the ministry of waiting on tables. So the apostles acknowledge they can't do everything, and they shouldn't do everything. Rather, they're to focus on their God-giving priorities, while others take up their own God-given priorities. Seems obvious, but it's hard to put into practice. In the Bible Speaks Today commentary on Acts, John Stock comments, what is needed is the basic biblical recognition that God calls us to different ministries. 
Then the people will ensure that the pastor is set free from unnecessary administration in order to give himself to the ministry of the word, and the pastor will ensure that the people will discover their gifts and develop ministries appropriate to them. As one of my predecessors famously said, and you can read it in the history book that Ian's just written for us, when called to the pastorate of this church, and when called to a later meeting for a vote of confidence when he was criticised for not visiting every member of the congregation, he said, you can have my head or my feet, but not both. Or as D.L. Moody said, better to put ten men to work than to do the work of ten men. However, not everyone is eligible for ministry. For notice what the apostles propose when they list the main qualifications for men for the ministry. First of all, they must be from among us. That is, people who are known within the fellowship have demonstrated not only the necessary gifts, but also the necessary character. They are to be known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. There's a lot of debate on whether this is the origin of what we call the office of deacon in the church, which we find later in the New Testament. Uh, The word to wait on tables and ministry all have the same root word as the word deacon. What is important, however, always, is not the office, but the function, what you're actually doing. And more than that is the character of the people who are doing it. You see, churches sometimes run into great difficulties on this issue. They choose people, first of all, on their gifts, and only second, really, think about their character. Oh, he's a great musician. Let's sign him up. He's got a wonderful gift with finance in his day job. Let's put him on the committee for that. But first and foremost, we always look for character. And other qualifications, second. That doesn't mean you choose someone who's very spiritual and can't sing in tune. Or someone who's, who's a fine Christian but can't count. No, you choose first of all the character, and then what follows on from that are the gifts. It's not just what you do, but how you do it. And above all, it's a willingness to be a servant, whatever role it may be. Significantly, don't have time to look at it, but if you look in the pastoral epistles, when the Apostle Paul lists the qualifications for elders and deacons, 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, they're concerned almost entirely with character. The only change, the only difference between the two is that the elder is someone who is able to teach. So the priority of leaders is prayer and the ministry of the word. Through the ministry of the word... God's people are strengthened and believers hear the gospel. And through prayer, God's help is sought and God's will is discovered. So, the apostles bring this practical proposal to the whole church. But notice they do not impose it on them. They don't say, we're apostles, this is what you're going to do. They say, this is what seems right to us. Now, you need to make a decision about this. So, notice thirdly and finally, a successful solution. Notice... The happy outcome, unanimous approval. This proposal pleased the whole group. Not only a pleasing outcome, but also a pleasant surprise. Most churches you'd expect at least one widow to vote in favour of the Apostle John still driving the chariot that brings her meals on wheels. But the important principle is not who performs the ministry, but that it is performed by someone who is suitably gifted and is trustworthy in character. And this is the case with the men who were nominated by the people. 
Look again at the names. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, convert to Judaism. Now, some of those names are familiar ones to us, others are not. The one thing you would know if you came from that background is something very interesting. They are all Greek names and they almost certainly all come from the complaining community. They didn't say, let's set up a balanced committee and we'll have two Greeks on it, three Hebrews and a couple of apostles to chair the meeting. No, very graciously, the whole church says, it's your problem, we'll give you the responsibility to solve it by choosing men from among your own community. So these seven men are nominated by the people and approved by the apostles. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The apostles indicate their acceptance by laying their hands on them. In this way they seek God's confirmation, the Spirit's power to enable the seven to fulfill their ministry. Now notice, wonderfully, what is the outcome? The outcome is further growth. The twelve are free to continue their ministry and the seven are delegated to carry out their ministry. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. That's in verse 7. The number of disciples continues to increase in Jerusalem. Including even a large number of priests. That's not the elite group of priests, but the lay kind of priests who served in the temple on a regular basis. Some people think there are up to 18,000 of them in Jerusalem at this time. But the growth does not end there. Our verse for the year, the commission, is you will be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem, not ending there, but in Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And notice the most wonderful thing we're going to see as we continue this series, God willing, is that the next step forward is taken not by the Hebraic Jews, but by the Grecian Jews we discover that the seven men who were nominated by the church were not restricted to food distribution. The first name, Stephen, described as full of faith in the Holy Spirit, is a powerful preacher. He becomes the first martyr of the church. But as David shared with the children, this leads to further growth as a great persecution breaks out against the disciples of Jesus and all of them, except the apostles, are driven out of Jerusalem. Where do they go? Judea and Samaria. What do they do? Spread the word everywhere they go. Acts 8 verses 1 and 4. On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. All except the apostles were scattered through Judea and Samaria. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And through the second person in the list, Philip, the church continues to grow in Samaria and Africa. We'll come to that in Acts 8. Philip travels to Samaria. There's a great revival among those traditional enemies of the Jews. And from there, directed by the Spirit, he goes down into the desert, is the means of salvation of a high-ranking Ethiopian official, so the gospel reaches out to North Africa. So as we pull this together, the problem of food distribution to widows, rather than being a trivial matter, is a significant means by which the church continues to grow. And the agents of that growth are from among the very people who were the ones complaining. Instead of being disgruntled, instead of being excluded from the fellowship, they are drawn in to Christian service, into the leadership of the church, used by God. Had the issue of food not been dealt with, then the outcome would have been very different. The little book on Acts, which I commend to you by an Australian, David Cook, writes... 
Church disunity always has the potential to slow down the flow of the gospel as a fractured church is rarely missionary focused and evangelistic in its orientation. Disunity saps our emotional resources. We are so busy engaged with the fellowship, we have no strength left to reach out. That's why it's so important that we deal with these issues, that we focus on them. And we don't just brush them aside, those of us in leadership. We deal with them and we facilitate them in these growing pains. We may need new structures to enable more growth. Well, we began with Derek and Deborah, 13 kids and wanting more. I don't suppose that resonates with too many of us here this morning. But settling for a static church family should never be an option for any Christian or any church. You see, some churches are happy to remain a small and close-knit group. They don't want to experience the changes that new people will bring. I remember in my church that I mentioned, when it began to get bigger, some of the founder members began to complain and say, this is not the church it was when we started it. Then we knew everybody and it was much better fellowship and so on and so forth. You can't change that. Growth brings challenges and change. Any church that will not adapt will not grow, will fossilize, and will eventually die. Growth should be the norm and growing pains will be the norm. How we deal with them is absolutely crucial. Let's pray together.